0: Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message
1: from Dr. Kinlaw. Charles, when he asked me if I would deal with it, as we were talking together, we sort of came jointly together to the conclusion that the matter of the church, the body of Christ, would be a good thing for these sessions, and so uh, I suggested to him a book, and that book, which you have found out about, I don't know whether you had it or not, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together. Uh, I read it a number of years ago and had let it slip into my memory. And uh, so when we, when I began thinking about this series, I began wondering what would be an appropriate text to use. And so I thought about this one and I went back, I went and bought me a new copy of it and sat down and read it through and felt very happy with it. And as I read it, one of the thoughts that came to me was I wish that I had really read this carefully when I was about 20 to 25 years of age because it represents a way of thinking that I do not find expressed in many places, or a way of thinking that many people really illustrate. I, uh, As I reread it this time, I thought, he has a very different mind from most of ours, his uh, way of thinking. It's a biblical mind. And recently I read a quotation from a British Anglican, who said that one of the things that has happened in our generation in the latter part of this century is that we still have some Christian institutions and we have a bit of the Christian ethic left, but we have very little of the Christian mind left, even in Christian circles. Mm-hmm. Now, I think there's some truth in that. And I think one of the reasons, one of the reasons I think there's some truth in that is the difficulty with which I found myself thinking some of Bonhoeffer's thoughts because I suspect that I reflect a good bit of the world of which I'm a part, and a good bit of the world of which you're a part. And so I found myself having to go back and uh, reread, and having to trace things through the book, to be sure that I was thinking what he was thinking when he wrote what he was writing. There's some fascinating concepts in it that I'd like to uh, deal with, and the, the second section is on the day with others. Uh, first is how you relate to the whole. The second is your days with others. The third section is on the day alone. He deals with us in community and he deals with us in solitude. And he says you're not ready to live in solitude until you are a part of a community. And you're not ready to be a part of a community until you uh, construct a part of a community until you know how to live in, live in <coughs> solitude. too. And it's in the oscillation between those two. That uh, life is supposed to be lived. He has a section on ministry, and uh, his uh, uh, he has a his closing section is on confession and communion. Mm-hmm. I was fascinated to find Protestants who believe in confession. <laughs> uh, I have not had a great deal of experience with uh, confession in the formal structural sense that we think about in the Roman Catholic tradition, but here he, he a good Lutheran, is was a part of a community. Life, a community of which he was a part. Fascinating to hear him discuss it, and I suspect there are some priceless insights for us in terms of pastoral life and how we relate to people that God has given to us, and how they relate to us in that. So I'd like to urge you to uh, read this, and if you haven't read it, to read it. Uh, read a good chunk of it tonight. There are only about 100 or oh, 112 pages of print in it, and it goes fairly quickly. But uh, as you read, see if you can think it's thoughts. I thought I would take a minute and tell you a little about Dietrich Bonhoeffer in case you either don't know or you have forgotten some of these details. So if you know Bonhoeffer as well or better than I, you be patient with me a minute while I give you some material which you already are familiar with. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born in 1906, so he is very much a part of the 20th century. He died on April the 9th in 1945. So you see, he was just 39 years of age when he died. amazing, this little book was written, if I remember correctly, when he was about 33. Now, uh, I was amazed at the maturity of his thoughts, for what we think of, tend to think of, wait a minute, when you get my age, you tend to think of as a very young person. But uh, you will remember that he was a martyr, for what he believed, under Adolf Hitler. He uh, came from a rather prominent family, a gifted family, and I think that helped make what he had to say all the more significant. His father held the first chair of psychiatry in a German university, so that he knew psychiatry when it was simply a, an initial beginning discipline. Mm-hmm. So he was then on the early stages of the development of psychiatry as a discipline. His father was a professor of psychiatry. He uh, had neighbors that were people like Adolf Harnack. And when he walked to school in the morning, he walked to school with Adolf Harnack's kids. They were his friends. And there were other German uh, scholars of almost comparable stature. there's a magnificent simplicity of faith that runs all the way through what he has to say. He, uh, six years before he was imprisoned, which would have been when he was 33 years of age, before he was imprisoned, well, let's see, he have been 31, before so he was in prison for two years. Six years before his imprisonment by the Gestapo, put you in 1932, when the shape of things to come was not, ex- not explicitly clear in Germany yet, unless there was a prophetic element in Jesus uh, von Hubbard that isn't present in, in the most of us. But his concept of the call of Christ was, he said, when Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids that person come and die. As I indicated, his family was a closely, uh, was a remarkable family and it was a very closely knit family. And I suspect this has something to do with some of his insights, too. He was a Lutheran and had a great uh, respect for Martin Luther. One of the things that characterizes him is a healthy realism, like what you have found in Martin Luther. And so you will remember that some of the people who have interpreted, uh, interpreted him have felt that he gave to us sort of a secularistic concept of Christianity really, I think that's a false name, what he was talking about with Christianity in the marketplace, Christianity in the middle of a secular world. How do you live out there where the world around you is totally taken? His doctor's thesis was a dogmatic, and by dogmatic it means a theological, study of the communion of saints. So when we talk about the body of Christ, early in his life it became one of his things. He became, after graduation from Theological school of lecture in systematic theology. In 1933, he was he was 27, he was cut off in a radio broadcast. He was speaking over the radio in 1933. He was giving a radio broadcast, a national radio broadcast, and the people who ran the radio, national radio, cut him off. And the reason they cut him off was because he was speaking against protesting. The mindset of the German public at that time ended, he said, we have a hankering for a leader, a leader who can lead us out of our problems, and what we probably are going to get because of the way we hanker after that human leader is to get a misleader. He was sensitive enough about this that when the Nazi movement arose, he refused to be a part of the German-Christian compromise which Hitler developed and which he foisted on the church. He left Germany because of the tension in himself to what was taking place in Germany. He pastored in England for a while and then returned to Germany to head up to lead an illegal, clandestine, underground seminary in Pomerania. He was a churchman all his days. And he was a pastor at heart and deeply interested in the pastoral ministry. He later moved to, think, uh, uh, Finkenwald where he shared a communi- a common life with 25 other clergymen and they lived together in a religious community. In 1938, he wrote on that experience of common life in a book entitled Gemeinsame Leben, uh, which is really the, uh, uh, this book uh, is the gist of what he wrote then. And then later he wrote The Cost of Discipleship, uh, which you know, uh, and many of you have read, in which he distilled what it meant for him to live with Christ, his understanding of Christian discipleship. Now, he, uh, because of his distancing himself and his separating himself, from what was the acceptable church life of his day under Adolf Hitler he was forbidden he was forbidden to write and he was forbidden to publish and his underground seminary was finally closed by the Gestapo he wanted very much to be a pacifist and that fascinates me and i think it i think it's a key to uh needs to be kept in mind as we read the book and as we think about his life living under nazism Pacifism had a great appeal to him, and he, under C.F. Andrews' influence, he was going to India to visit with uh, uh, Gandhi and learn more of that movement there. But he uh, came to the place where he felt that to dissociate himself from the resistance to Hitler that some of the Christian leadership in Germany was committing itself to, that his disassociation from those people would be, for him, irresponsible cowardice and a flight from reality. You will find in him a strong opposition to the kind of piety that wants to run from life, a kind of piety that wants to run from daily interaction with a pagan world about us. He was not an escapist. He may have wanted to be one, but his Christian convictions held him in face-to-face interfacing with life. He felt a Christian must accept responsibility as a citizen of this world where God has placed him. And so he found himself living in the tension between idealism that he would have loved to have subscribed to and being what he felt was a faithful Christian under extremely difficult circumstances. In 1939, he visited the United States. He was urged while he was here to stay and he, to have a ministry here. You will remember there were many other German Christian leaders who did exactly that and found very great success in the United States. He was given that opportunity, but he decided no, that was not God's call for him. He took one of the last ships that sailed from the United States to Germany before the Second World War and sailed as The one who gives a forward here says to his manifest destiny. On the 5th of April in 1943, he was arrested and imprisoned. On the 8th of April, 1945, which was two years later, on a Sunday, he conducted a service of worship for those that were in prison with him. He had just finished his last prayer when the door opened and two men in civilian dress came in and said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. At that point, he turned to a friend who was an English officer. Now, I do not know for sure whether my interpretation of this is correct, but as I read it, I thought it may well be that he spoke to the English officer in English, because he knew English well, and he could say what was in his thought, thought in his mind, without uh, the people that were taking him out, hearing what he, understanding what he said. At least a little more privacy speaking in English. So he turned to his friend, an English officer, and he said, This is the end. But for me, it is the beginning of life. And the next day, they hanged him. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but I'm interested in that kind of person. And I'm ready to listen to that kind of person. Because he had options. Did not have to take that route. And could have very easily, many of his colleagues, you will remember that uh, when Niemöller, who was close to him, and, a, and a, at the same time, when Niemöller was put in prison, he found a German Lutheran pastor with whom he had a relationship as the chaplain of the prison into which Niemöller was put. And when Niemöller was put in prison, the chaplain of the uh, prison came to see him and said, uh, Dr. Niemöller, what are you doing here? And Niemöller looked at him and said, why aren't you here? And this was the world in which these fellows lived. Their lives were on the line for their sake. Now, I would like to talk, not make an attempt to go through the book and explicate it. You're as intelligent as I am and can read as well as I. But uh, I'd like to talk about some of the basic concepts behind it that inform not only this book, but also that inform the church in its better moments. The church when it is thinking biblically, when it has a Christian mind. The basic concepts that inform the mind of the church when it's the truest and enable it to think of these things and what it means when it thinks these things. You know, I remember I had a course at Princeton uh, years ago, Princeton Theological Seminary. It was a course that I had very little preparation for. And I was a master's student, and I made a big, fat C in that course. Now, when you're in a master's program, this was the THM. You might, that's the equivalent of a D. You don't get any credit for that course, and it's a shade better than flunking, but not much better than flunking. And uh, I remember what a shock it was for me. Slowly it began to dawn on me, and let me say, it was one of the best courses I ever had. It may be one of the two most profitable courses I ever took. But when I was trying to figure why I came out so poorly on that, slowly it began to dawn on me, I had very little background for that course, and uh, 60% of it sailed over my head, and I never knew when it went past. I heard every word that was spoken, and I could have given you a dictionary definition of most of the words that were spoken. But the ideas that were inherent within and informing those phrases and sentences and paragraphs, I'd never thought. And so I heard the words, but I didn't think the ideas, and I got scored on that. Now, one of the things that I've wished through the years is that I could have a Christian mind and a biblical mind and think Christian.
0: So I'd like to talk about some assumptions behind this kind of thing, and some assumed
1: concepts behind beneath our conversation and our preaching and our discussions of Zion, the city of our God, and of the body of Christ. Now uh, I'd like to talk some theology. Now the, one of the problems with theology is that oftentimes we don't see a relationship between the theory. And theologians talk about the dogma and the practice. And they say, I really am not interested in what you, what you talk about in terms of dogma and theory. I'm interested in what you do. I don't know how it translates into life. But the fact is that the theory determines, or if it is not determined, it, it explains so we can understand the proper action and the things that we do, why we do the things that we do. I'd like to illustrate that before I, uh, on, a, on a different angle. This past year, I had an illustration come to me that was graphic. I was working on the Song of Songs, and had to do a, a manuscript on the Song of Songs. And so, uh, I found myself digging into the history of the interpretation of the Song of Songs. And when I got into that, there was no way I could escape, dealing with the question of human sexuality. What it means to be male and female and how the male and the female are supposed to relate to each other. Because if you know anything about the Song of Songs, you know that it is a magnific- it's magnificent love poetry between a male and a female who are deeply in love, and their love at the physical level, is, and it's love at the physical level as well as at any other level. And I found something. The church has had one miserable time for 1,700 years knowing what to do with the Song of Songs. And what I consider its misinterpretation of the Song of Songs uh, became very clear and astoundingly uh, mistaken to me. Now let me illustrate just a few things that, that bear on that. Orson, if I remember correctly, wrote two commentaries on the psalm song psalm. lived about 200 A.D., before and after. In his day, he was the most widely celebrated biblical scholar in the Christian world. Without talent. Without equal. So that he represented the best biblical mind or scholarly mind, that the church had to offer. Ayrton had himself castrated so he'd be more devout. Because he felt that his masculine sexuality was deep a deep problem to soothe the spirituality. Now that was 170 years after the death of Christ. Now, if you go on, you will find that Augustine came along about 400, and Augustine is in many ways as great a mind as the church has ever produced, an incredible giant of a scholar and of a theologian. The church will always be in its debt, though uh, at some point he uh, had some genuine problems reading and seeing what the Bible actually said. You know sometimes you can't see what's in front of you? You can say all the words, but you can't think the thought that's there. There is a passage in Augustine's writing where he is writing to a widow. And he tells her how privileged she is now, that she does not have the hindrance to true spirituality of a husband and of married life. She now has been set free so she can be a first class Christian. In this same period, the church decided that it would be better if pastors were not married. And finally, it said, in the Western church, all pastors should be single celibate. And in the Eastern church, it said, well, at least the bishop should be subliminal. And that there were two levels of spirituality. There was the, those who knew celibacy, and they were the superior Christians. And then there were the people who lived a normal married life, and they were second-rate Christians. Do you know that it was 1700 before anybody dared really of any significance to take the Song of Songs and interpret it literally? way they handled the Song of Songs was, they said, oh, this is not talking about a male loving a female and a female loving a male, it's talking about Christ loving the church and the church loving Christ. And some way or other, the church could not believe that the relationship symbolized by the relationship of Christ to the church and the church to Christ could really be pure. So that a man as great as Augustine says, Every time a husband and wife have sex relations, he commits sin. Now he said God's very merciful. God is very merciful on the male concupiscence. That's a fascinating term, isn't it? To use what to cover what we speak of as now a very holy and a very sacred relationship between a husband and wife.
0: Now, why
1: was why could not the church think uh, differently than that? Its thinking was controlled, dominated by that Roman Church still under the cellar. Well, it's uh, fascinating to me that you have a difficult time getting the Bible to support that, because do you know that in the Old Testament there is no word for Hebrew word for an old bachelor? And in the Old Testament, you couldn't be a priest unless you were married. And in the Old Testament, you couldn't be a chief priest, the high priest, you could not get into the Holy of Holies unless you were married and your wife was alive. Which meant unless you were living a relatively normal married sex life, you could not get into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, you know poor. And the mark of the covenant that a person belonged to God was circumcision, the point of union between a man and his wife. And in the Old Testament, Israel was looked upon as the bride of Yahweh, and idolatry was spoken of as adultery, which laid the groundwork for Paul in Ephesians, where he says, Husband's supposed to love his wife the way Christ loved the church. And while half the church said uh, no priest should be married, and the other half said, well, maybe the priest, but certainly no bishop. The New Testament is very explicit that a bishop is to be the husband of one wife. The text is very clear. Now, why did they have trouble thinking those thoughts? They had trouble thinking those thoughts because they lived in a Greek world. And you see, the common mind that a person had without even knowing he thought that way was that the flesh is evil. Plato illustrated it. Plato is the best of the minds of the Greek world. And he said death, beautiful thing about death is you would be delivered from the body. And the concept of physical resurrection to a Greek mind was highly offensive. And so, they had difficulty seeing what was right under their nose. And you know, when I got to the end of that study, you know why the question went through my head? If they had that much trouble seeing what was there, what about me? How much is there that I'm missing in this biblical text? And how much is there that I am interpreting in alien categories, categories that are not biblical and that, that are not Christian, but that I picked up without ever knowing it from my world around me? I would question very much as whether it's possible for a person who's, who's born and bred on American TV to think 80% of the, of the concepts that are found in Scripture without some radical work being done on. Now, uh, that's the reason I'm interested in uh, uh, some of these basic theological concepts, and the one I want to deal with first is in terms of the Trinity. Uh, that's a question that is getting some discussion today, but uh, i come to believe that it is the uniquely Christian intellectual concept and a uniquely Christian intellectual doctrine, or dogma. And that the concept of the body of Christ is intimately weighed to that doctrine of the Trinity. And that you will never fully understand the biblical doctrine of the body of Christ unless you understand the doctrine of the Trinity, the triune God. Now that involves three things that I want to mention. The first is, it involves the question as to what a person is. Now, uh, I think if you caught the average person and said, would you tell me what a person is, he'd look at you, and he would think, that guy's lost his marbles. But I'd like to ask you what a person is. I dare you to try to find a good definition, an adequate definition of a person. You know, uh, we tend to think of a person as an individual. And the minute we equate a person with an individual, we are no longer capable of thinking from basic biblical thoughts. Now, a person may be an individual, but an individual, the term individual is not synonymous with a person. Uh, I hope I can illustrate that clearly enough that you will hear what I have to say. And I'd like to uh, Uh, in the course of our time together to have some time for questions and answers so that you can push me if you haven't heard what I said. Do you know where the term person came into Western language? Do you know the reason we have the term person use it the way we do? It came out of the Trinitarian discussions in the 3rd century and the 4th century. When they were trying to decide who Jesus was. Do you know why the improvement in Augustine over origin in his view of human sexuality? One of the reasons was they said that God took on human flesh. And if Jesus, you will remember the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed, which said he was fully human, you know, true human and truly human and truly divine? Well, if he's the God-man, it's interesting that God took on genitalia. And if God took on genitalia, you're going to have trouble saying that human sexuality is evil, or impure,
0: or unclean.
1: There may be unclean things we do with our humanity, but there is nothing unclean in the humanness, because God assumes it. But now, when God became a person among us, what does that mean? Uh, that are summed up in a French uh, philosopher of the 16th century, who in many many people feel is the father of modern thought. 400 years of human thought. His name was Rene Descartes. He wanted to know what you could be sure about. He wanted to get a point of departure that could not be challenged. He wanted one position that could not be challenged. And from that, he would build his case for what he did. So they say that he crawled in the belly of a stove, to meditate <laughs> and got along. And there he came to that famous uh, saying, which uh, I think Roman Catholics would pronounce with his Latin, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. He said, I exist. I'm sure of that. I have consciousness. I can't deny that, and so I will start with that. If I have consciousness, I must be. So he started with the individual in isolation. The philosopher in the belly of a stove. But let me ask you, is it really possible for US to ever to get an individual alone? I notice that every time I bump into one person, I know there are two more somewhere, or else there were two more somewhere. Persons don't come alone, persons come in webs of relationships. And modern thought has been built on an individual in which you try to treat the individual alone. It's interesting, the uh, Way that word person developed. The pagans said to the Christians in the second and third centuries, they said, Now this Jesus you talk about, Uh, who was he? And they said, Well, it's not a case of who was he because he was resurrected, he lives. And they said, Well, then who is he? And they said, Well, uh, we worship him. They said, If you worship him, then he's the Savior. They said, If you worship him and he's the Savior, then you say he's divine. They said, yes, we believe in the divinity of Christ. Then you believe he's God. he said, yes. They said, yes, we believe he's God. The God man. God who took on human flesh. They said, well, if he's the God man, you've told us about the crucifixion. And they said, yes, that's right. He was crucified. They said, did he die? And he said, they said, Christians said, yes, he died. And they said, God died? And they said, yes, he died. So they said, then who was sustaining the universe when he died? Who took care of everything between Friday afternoon and Sunday morning? (coughs) They said, well, that was the Father. They said, then tell us about the Father. And they said, the Christians said, well, there was the Father and Jesus was the Son. They said, then you believe in two gods, don't you? The Jews were upset about that, and the Greeks said, your a is like we are. And they said, oh no, we don't believe in two gods. We believe in one God. And they said, then will you explain the relationship between the Father in heaven who sustained all, all things while he was dying, and uh, the Son that you say was divine? And so they said, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> You know, it's interesting, there are days when the church doesn't have an answer. And the fact that it doesn't have an answer may not mean that the pagans who ask the questions are right. Do you know there are days when a Christian can't answer the world's questions, and the world's wrong, and the Christian's right? So you take the third and fourth centuries of the Christian Church and the hottest question discussed was who is Jesus and what's his relationship to the Father. And they said, well, they, you see, there's three of them. there's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So they ran through all sorts of options, like one of them was, well, you got Father in the Old Testament, the Son in the Gospels and the New Testament, and the Church. And the Holy Spirit in the Church now. So you got one God, and He showed Himself in three manifestations. He said, oh, "No, no, 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 can't be that way," because then you don't have any answer for what happened between Friday afternoon and Sunday morning. Who was in control? So they said, "Then you got three gods." And they said, "No, we don't have three gods." And they said, "Well, tell us about this." So they began looking for language to explain it. It is a fascinating discussion of the language that they used. And there was no language that fitted. So what they had to do was take terms that didn't mean what they said and then make them mean what they said. So they said, We believe in one God, in one being, but he has their three persons in him. Now the word person Persona is the Latin equivalent of a Greek word, prosopon, which meant face. And the persona was a mask which an actor wore or an actress in a play, so you know which role the person played. So in the beginning, the word person simply meant a mask. And what they were saying was, God had three faces. But they said it's it's more than that. So they finally said, he's one being in three persons. And everything that you can say about the being can also be said about each one of the persons. But there is no such thing as the separation of one of the persons from one of the others. Now, uh, can you imagine how that exploded the minds of the pagans in that day and also exploded the minds of Christians in that day. I'm going to get at something that I'm interested in. You know, I was, I think, 58 years of age before I had the courage to say in public that God was not a person. Because, you see, that's what we say about God. He's personal. But there's the difference between God being personal and a person I'm using classical orthodox language, too. He's one being in three persons. Now, you know, God is infinite. Now, stick with me a second and see if you can uh, uh, think with me and I can communicate. It's not that complicated. It's just that we're not used to getting our language to where we say it. If God is one being in three persons, then do you know That to be a person is to be incomplete. To be an individual is not. But to be a person is to be incomplete. And do you know that the church historically has said if you had a perfect person, he'd be incomplete or she'd be incomplete? And that if you had a divine person, He or she or he, she, whatever it is, would be incomplete. Because to be a person, by definition, is to be incomplete. Now, that brings me to this. God is infinite. You and I are finite. God is complete and perfect. And you and I are imperfect. He is one God in three persons. And I'm one being. He's one being in three persons. I'm one being, that's where the individual comes from, and I'm one person, and in my personhood, I'm incomplete. Do you know that's basic to the notion of the body of Christ? Now, let me me run through a few passages from Jesus that... uh, with what I'm saying. There's some passages in the Gospel of John that' have begun to open up for me now. like this, John 5:19, the son can do nothing of himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. The father gives life and he's given to the son the power to give life. Now uh, most of the translations capitalize that word son. When it says, the son can do nothing of himself. Isn't it interesting when you get divine impotence? The king of kings and the lord of Lords, whose power comes from another person. Let me read another. Verse 26 of the same chapter, the father has life in himself. He has granted the son to have life in himself. Do you know the expression, the only begotten son? The expression, the only begotten son, means that the son gets his life from another. And it's not within himself. His origin is outside of himself. And his sustenance is outside of himself. You know what modern thought wants to make of every person? Complete in himself. Stand on his own feet. Stand on her own feet. Handle our own destiny, handle his own destiny. Be self-contained. Let a person find himself or herself and be himself or be herself. When to be a person means that that is an illusion. Do you know that every person is made for a web of relationships? And sin is the thing that breaks those relationships? And there's something in every person in the world that longs to get back into that web of relationships from which sin has expelled that person. Now, if you don't think this is pertinent, let me give you an illustration. I have a friend who is an Australian. She was a journalist. She... uh, was only an Anglican in Australia. She said, actually, I was a good atheist. Not only was I an atheist, but I was hostile to God, the notion, and hostile to everybody else. She said, I was a cauldron of hostility. She as a journalist. One day had an assignment to write an article, a series of articles, on drug problems in Australia and drug treatment. This was for 16 newspapers, a syndicated column across Australia. So she said, I had to go to all the different drug treatment centers in Australia and find out what was taking place. She said, while I was in that process, she said an American charismatic evangelist came to Australia for a crusade. She said, one day he came into my office. His, uh, the person who brought him in was a five little... Unimpressive, Australian preacher. And the Australian preacher introduced the American Charismatic Evangelist, and they wanted some publicity. And Mary told me, she said, he was so arrogant that he, his arrogance met my hostility. And she said, it was frightful. She said, it got so hot that he threatened to take me to the ethics uh, commission of the Australian Journalists Association. She said, I would just love to meet you there. She said it was heavy hostility between the two. Well, she said the next day she was sitting at her desk and in walked that same little Australian pastor without the American evangelist. And he... uh, had a dozen roses. And he said, I'm looking for Miss Fisher. She said, well, I was wearing a different wig that day, so he didn't re- recognize me. <laughs> said, uh, I looked at him and said, I'm Miss Fisher. And he said, well, I want to apologize for my American friend yesterday. She said, he said, uh, I'm so sorry. And he handed her the dozen roses. She said, I was not about to let him off the hook. I was not about to accept those dozen roses. And I let him know so. She said, I continued my work on my, my research on drug treatment. She said, one day I walked into a drug treatment, a drug center, a Christian community for drug addicts. And she said, guess who was the head of the Christian community? It was my friend, the little Australian pastor. She said, uh, that threw me. But she said, I had an assignment, so I worked my way through it. She said, I made three visits to that community. She said, I came to my last visit. She said, as I sat my last time and talked with him, she said, I suddenly came unpleased.
0: And found myself weeping profusely and
1: saying, I don't know what you got here. But there's nothing in the world I wouldn't give
0: to have it. And he looked back at it and said, well, you can have it. He said, how can that be? I'm an atheist. You said it was tied up with your religion. He said, inextricably. Uh-huh. And she said, Well, how can I have it as an atheist? He said, That's no problem. Just tell him. She was
1: genuinely converted. She heads up now at the present moment, American inter Christian Fellowship, the ministry that has to do with overseas work, particularly work in China. She has spent five years, six years, in mainland China, first as a university student, as a Christian, and then as a teacher in China. One of the great people that I've met in recent years, magnificent. Now here she is, an atheist, loaded with hostility, and she meets people who are living together in a Christian community, where every person is dependent on everybody else, and every person knows you'll never make it alone. They're not standing in their individualism, they're standing in their corporate life together, and it's their salvation. And what they experience out of weakness, she comes in and says, I'd give anything in the world if I could have it.
0: That is the heart cry of a person. We are made for love. And you know what love is? God is love. And
1: you know what God is love means? not three individuals who've opted to like each other or even commit each other, commit themselves to each other. It's three persons who are not complete
0: within themselves.
1: And when the eternal Son of God says I can do nothing of myself, I came not to do my own will. My own will would be my death. I came not to do my own will. I came to do the will of another. I came to do the will of my father.
0: You know how counter the modern thought that is?
1: That your fulfillment is doing the will of somebody else? Now, I want to tell you where the shocker came to me. There was something inside me in my pie, I see. If you'll ever use that word in a bad sense. There was something to me in my religiosity that said it's right that creatures should submit to God.
0: Isn't it a fascinating thing when God
1: submits to God?
0: And when God asks me to submit to him, he is not asking me to do one thing he
1: hasn't done. Because you see, It is not submission that is demeaning. What it is saying is, my fulfillment is in somebody else.
0: It's not this way. It's outside me. And my fulfillment is in you. And you know the other half of that? Your fulfillment is in me. And our fulfillment is in each other. Now, that kind of thinking is basic to everything in Obama. So when he talks about community, let me say,
1: he's talking about a body. In contrast to an organization or an association or an institution or a corporation, you know there's an incredible difference between a body and an organization, or a denomination, or an institution? You see, an organization is made up of a bunch of individuals. But how long can one of my cells live separated from my body? It'll take artificial means to keep it alive. And if it's to stay alive, you've got to put it in another body. It's got to become a part of another body. Now, uh, the thinking here is not of Christians.
0: And that's the reason I love Zion instead of kingdom. Because the kingdom is made up of citizens. And do you know, one citizen can suffer and the rest of the citizenry don't hurt. But do you know if you stick a pin in one of my cells, all of me feels
1: it. I want you to be nice to every part of me, because any part of me that you mistreat, the rest of me feels it. That is a very different concept than our con, our ways of thinking, of brotherhood mason, or the
0: elf, or a labor You see, the biblical concept is life. Now, uh,
1: I'll come back to this, but let me drop this before we quit for a minute. It's become a uh, very impressive to me and very beautiful to me. Matthew 10, 40, Jesus says, Anybody that receives you gets me. And anybody that gets me
0: gets my Father. He never comes alone. Nobody ever goes alone. You know, you touch me, you touch a whole string of people. Jesus says, if you get me, if they get me, they get my father.
1: They receive you, they get me, and when they get me, they get my father.
0: We come in a pack.
1: In Luke 9:48, he said, anyone who welcomes one of these little ones in my name, welcomes me. So if you take one of these little ones, you get me. And if you reject one of these little ones that comes in my name, you miss me. But hold on. He says, if you welcome me, you welcome the one that's born. Do you know there's no way to get God the Father alone? And there's no way to get God the Son alone. When you get one, you get the other. And then he says to the likes of you and me, I send you. The Father sent me to you. You've received me. Now I'm sending you to them. If they take you, they get me. And when they get me, they get my Father. You come in a package.
0: What does that do to human relationships? That's the only explanation of Mother Teresa. Do you understand me when I say that? Do you understand me when I say that? That's the only explanation of Mother Teresa.
1: Well, you know, her basic philosophy is that when she sees a person dying in the street, that's Jesus. Now you can go too I mean, you can go too far with that. I mean you can you can direct it in the wrong language, which will mislead them. This is the reason I think it needs to be crystal clear. But uh, God doesn't have two standards for me in dealing with his creatures. He has one standard. So that what I do with what I do with his creatures, I'm doing with him. You want to push me on that? You may be able to say it better than I'm saying it. This is the reason that a Christian, out of all the people in the world, should treat every person with respect. Really? Now, there's a concept in Bonhoeffer that, let me tell you, I, I had to wrestle before I thought that I had any grasp of it. He says, No person ever meets another person immediately, and no person ever knows another person immediately. I want you to kick that one around in your head. In other words, he says, there is no way that two people can know each other. He says, you've got to have a
0: third person for two people to know each other.
1: Now, that that was alien to my thinking when I started. I had to wrestle with that. I think he's right. That's the reason that when you marry a couple, you do it in his name. What he's saying is that no two people can know each other. In the biblical sense of know, in the full sense, in the divine sense of know, you meet every person in Christ. Now you meet every person in Christ if the other person is a Christian. But do you know you need every person in Christ if the other person isn't? Free? Because when Christ died, when God created, He created all.
0: When He died, He died for all. And that person is
1: the person for whom
0: Christ died. Now, I
1: wish I knew how to say that. I want to say I'm only on the margin of what I'm talking about. And I'm talking over my head. Uh, So, I want you to to talk back during these sessions. One who listens to you, listens to me. And one who rejects you, rejects me. Luke 10, 16. One who rejects me,
0: rejects the one who sent me. If you reject me, you miss Christ. And when you miss Christ, you miss the Father. You know, the only way God can come to me is through another person. The only way He's got to get to me. Now, I may not be saying that perfectly,
1: but I'm not ready to back away from what I mean by what I'm trying to verbalize. So, Jesus says if a person listens to you, He'll hear me. And if He rejects you, He rejects me, and when he rejects me, he rejects the one who sent me. Well, I'm not going to challenge the fact that God speaks directly to his children. Because we're in daily communication with him. We know him. We know God through Christ. But I wonder if you're ever going to find anybody who is converted, but that there is some
0: human instrumentality.
1: needs to be taken in the broad sense of human human time. But what I want to get to is, I suspect that every person's salvation originates in somebody else's heart. I suspect that every person's salvation originates in somebody else's heart. But one of the roles of the body of Christ is intercession. What is Christ doing at the right hand of the Father now? He's interceding for us. What about our intercession?
0: It's, it's time for the
1: break. Uh, but I I wonder if you've ever put together. You know what? You know why I could not put them together for a long time? Because I was not ready to accept the notion, and I still shudder at
0: it. It horrifies. You reject me, and you lose him. I'm not ready to identify me with him that much. <laughs> but he is. That's the most humbling and terrifying and awesome thought I think I've ever had.
1: Well, uh, it is not an individual father in Judaism. It is a metaphor in which he is the father of Israel and the father of David. Uh let me say, uh, I I spent three years in a Jewish university, and I've done my best, not my best, but I've tried <laughs> to, uh, uh, to, to know something of how Jews think on this story. But uh, it's very seldom that you will find a Jew. I
0: want to say this, whom
1: God is a personal reality. The more atheists among Orthodox Jews than most any other group of people you could ever find. You don't have to believe in God to be an a- Orthodox Jew. And so, when you do find a Jew who will talk about God in personal terms, that is very that is very exceptional. And if the Jew means what we are saying here, it is the priest. It is the pre-Christian motif in the Old Testament that make it possible. Now, if you want to argue with me on that, I mean, we would need to, if you've got questions, we need to talk our way through until we, until we hurt each other on that. So don't uh, uh, uh have a little sympathy for me. I'm, I, I have difficulty verbalizing at this point. But uh, Where there are, you see, I do not believe that there is an Old and New Testament. I think we have a Bible. And I noticed that the Christian church, when you forget, how many Baptists are there in the church? Okay. Uh, Occasionally I pass. And I seem to see it more in Baptist churches, but I see it also in Christian churches, and I have two kids that are members of the Christian church, where they will say, a New Testament church. The New Testament church didn't have a New Testament. The New Testament church, all it had was the Old Testament, when the New Testament church was started. And in the New Testament church, the first century church, there was no opposition between the Old and New Testament. And there was no discarding of it. Their faith was built out of it. Now, I do not think you can read the Old Testament clearly with full comprehension any more than I think you can read the New Testament with full comprehension. I say that's bad language because nobody's going to read it with full comprehension. So let me say, you cannot read it with the the potential fullness of comprehension that is Potentially there for us. Just the same way you cannot read the New Testament without the understanding of the church's development of the doctrine of the Trinity, I don't think you can read the Old Testament with full comprehension without the New Testament in your hand. How many of you have uh, read or t- t- heard the testimony of C.S. Lewis' wife? Uh, she, she was a Jewish, graduate of Hunter College in New York City a communist, Marxist, back in the 30s. She was an editor of the People's Magazine, and was a vigorous uh, communist, dedicated communist. And one day she had an experience, which uh, I'd be interested in locating sometimes the origins of. but she had an experience in which she said, suddenly, in the most lonely moment of my life, when my whole world collapsed, I suddenly realized, I was not alone. And she said, it didn't fit my atheism, it didn't fit my communism, it didn't fit anything, but I knew there was another in my life. So I wanted to know who it was. So she said, I started vigorously reading Lenin.
0: <laughs>
1: she read, uh, said, I read everything of Lenin to try to find out about that person in my life, and there was nothing there. She said, then I returned to my Judaism, but she said, it never came clear. One day, somebody gave me a New Testament, and I found his name was Jesus. Now, you see, Jesus said, if you don't get me, you miss my father.